And now, stay tuned for another episode of the Traumatic States of America. Welcome to the Traumatic States of America. Our main goal is to begin to heal some of the trauma we have suffered, both individually and collectively. I am your host, Dr. Lori Hood, and I will be talking with people from all walks of life who have suffered trauma in its myriad forms. Military veterans, attorneys, first responders, football players, stay-at-home moms, and many more. We will hear how trauma has not only affected them, but their families and communities as we take an in-depth look at what science has to offer and what can be done to prevent, mitigate, and help recover from trauma. Today I have with me Dr. Risa Stein, who is a professor of clinical psychology and CEO of Amica USA. Welcome, Dr. Stein. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, my pleasure. So tell me, what is Amica? So Amica is a platform associated with an app and a wearable wristband that is embedded with an NFC chip, making it kind of a a high-tech wearable. And the purpose is to enable or empower individuals to share messages of affirmation and support with others whom they may or may not know but in this way provide proactive compassion to individuals who need it or want it as we all do and might not necessarily have the means to access it or the willingness to come forward and say they need support. So we are essentially crowdsourcing compassion and sharing it through a high-tech wearable. Dang. Okay. So, so you're like the opposite of what I study. You study compassion and how we can support one another. I'm not sure if you study it, but basically this is the opposite of trauma, right? Yeah. Yeah. In many ways. Although, uh, yeah, oftentimes, as you know, you're well aware with first responders and military, compassion is born out of shared traumatic experiences as well. Right. Right. But it sounds like through this application, people can uh, send affirm- affirmations and, and positive messages to, say, a first responder um, just because they appreciate them and without necessarily having been connected with them uh, in other ways, right? So it's, it's like a, it, it's a medium step so that people's identities are kept um, private. Is that correct? Or how does that work? Well, you can, an individual sharing a message can assume a pseudonym, but we are working towards creating more genuine and authentic connections, something that we don't often find through social media. So what we find is that folks, like the the individuals who would go out on their balconies and clap for the shift changes in healthcare workers during the height of COVID, Um, What we find is that there are a lot of individuals out there with kind hearts and compassion to share who feel stymied in being able to express themselves and share their gratitude with others. So whether you choose to remain anonymous or not, it's a means through which everybody with goodness in their heart can pay it forward or express themselves to individuals they might not otherwise have access to or feel comfortable just walking up to them and um, you know, saying, I appreciate you. It's, it's sort of a, a virtual hug. 
Nice. And we're not always comfortable giving virtual or uh, physical hugs, right? So right. we're empowering people to do that. That's awesome. That's totally awesome. So, um, so I, when you were thinking, like you know, the, the ability to reach out and to give someone a virtual hug, um, and the disconnection with um, you know social media and stuff, and especially you know everybody's wearing a mask. You can't see whether they're. I mean, you can tell if their eyes are smiling, but you can't tell if they're smiling. Um, a lot of micro expressions, I am assuming, are missed. Um, things are virtual, which is just not the same to the human brain, as you know, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, so we need more of what you're doing. And, and we are in, in the confines of COVID. I mean, we're just in those confines. And so, how do we find our ways around our way around that? And you clearly are doing this. Um, so, I would think also the sharer's side is important as well. It's it's not just receiving those great things, which ob- has obvious benefits, right? And I'll ask mm-hmm. you to go into those in more detail a little bit later. But I would think from the sharer's side, you know, like you said, they feel stymied. So so tell me what happens, you know, with your your background, you know, professor professor of clinical psychology. What happens to someone when they can't share? They feel stymied. What do you think happens to them? So I think it occurs on um, different intensities and in somewhat different ways, depending on who our target recipient would be. So for instance, when we first started Amica, it was intended as a platform through which parents could share messages of support and encouragement to kids who went off to college. So that would be one, or our spouse to spouse, or best friends, where... Nice. I, I would be awake at night when my son was off at college thinking, no, I hope he's not using drugs. I hope he's making friends. I hope he's studying hard. And that was my anxiety talking. Right. And I would stay awake at night because of that. But on the other hand, I didn't want to burden my son or bother him or, you know, just mommy loves you 10 times a day gets old. Right, so right. This, so I've been told. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> really? Me too, on multiple times. But, right, right, right. So, so it was through this unidirectional messaging platform that I could message Justin and say all of the things that I wanted to say. And he, knowing that I know that it's unidirectional, didn't feel the burden to respond. Oh, that's so huge. As that's huge. It, it is huge. Yes. It is. Because even with a, a Hallmark card or a text greeting or something, there's always the potential for reciprocation. And it's hard to know when the thank yous are supposed to stop. Yeah. So wow. in, this, in, in this way, he could access the affirmations that I'm sending. Anytime he's feeling down and he wants to hear his mother say, I love you, that's there. So that's where we started. And then we reprioritized our launch to go from that high level of intimacy to a higher level of community. Because what we were finding and what the research studies bore out was that the individuals who were sheltered in place while their neighbors and their loved ones and the strangers they saw on TV went in putting themselves in potential danger and the families that they came home to in potential danger through the COVID pandemic the folks who were at home and could not reach out to those folks felt guilty and they, they felt an actual physiological anxiety and not being able to adequately support people who they knew were sacrificing on their behalf. Yeah. So we wanted to make sure that we were able to uh, support those folks. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And the I know other that. part. That's oh, go go ahead. The other part. I'm sorry. Go ahead. And, I'll, and, I'll, I'll so, get Sure, sure. So the, the, the third part of it is that we have folks who have lived through these types of experiences who have a unique form of affirmation to provide. And other than peer-to-peer counseling, it's rare that an individual has an opportunity to say, I know what you're going through. I've been in your shoes. I have a wealth of respect for what you are doing. And I understand it's not easy. Yeah. So in this way, we, in some ways, we limit an individual's ability to follow their own mental health through providing that level of support to others who are, for all intents and purposes, whether physically or a part of the tribe. And we need that for our own mental health. So I believe our current mental health system is falling short. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, um, some of it is not really, you know, you're not really able to put blame on anybody because we're just overwhelmed. I mean, the COVID and, and there were things that were wrong before that. Um, oh, sure. And, and our system isn't designed for this. You know, even going no. up and paying a compliment to a stranger can be awkward, much less saying, you know, I, I admire your, your, your work as a firefighter or a teacher or an orderly in a hospital. We just don't do that. No, <laughs> you know, we're not no. set up that way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, so this, since you've moved more to a community platform, is it still unidirectional? It is. So our initial offering, our thank you program, is simply for individuals who want to say thank you and share support with with, um, our four hero groups, um, which are the first responders, the uh, educators and paraprofessionals and their support staff, healthcare workers and their support staff, supply chain delivery, and retail food workers. So if you want to just say thank you and put your good into the world, um, our, the thank you program works in that way. Mm-hmm. We're also working to white brand specific uh, platforms or programs for other individuals like first responders and veteran support groups. And there is the option and those to provide the unidirectional support, either from the top down, like workshop providers um, to participants and the ability to, to form smaller groups, either based on a particular demographic characteristic or a cohort or what have you. And those can be uni, uh, unidirectional or bidirectional. Okay. Um, I see, I, you know, I, I see some challenges inherent in likes and comments. Yeah. And in many ways, it undermines the internal motivators. Right. But there's certainly a place where that can be in, in an established community where it can be supportive as well. It would be, it would be safe, basically. With, exactly. Right, right, right. So I was just thinking of something when you were talking. So it's the, the, the not the small groups, which can be unidirectional or bidirectional, but the unidirectional platform. So it's, um, it's. What was I thinking? It was unidirectional messages or unidirectional support with bi-directional benefit, right? Yes, that's a good way of putting it. So I'm sending a message to a first responder and it makes me feel good to be able to do that. Um, but also my show of support combined with the show of support from thousands or hundreds, thousands, potentially one day millions of people from around the country and around the world helps shift that recipients worldview towards one where they see themselves as part of a community and that community is proactively supportive. 
Nice. That's really nice. Really, really nice. Yeah, I see. I mean, my mind's kind of going really quickly because I'm seeing so many different connections and so many things that are truly the opposite of, you know, stressors. They're, they're you know, um, I mean, they're positive um, things that can be added to somebody's day or week or life or whatever. Mm-hmm. But also, um, you know, the 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 idea that using a platform, a, um, an application for good um, is, mm-hmm. is such a shift. And it's a paradigm change. It's, I mean, it's shifting our thinking so much because I feel like there are several social media platforms that have just become so toxic really toxic yep that's the exact right word and and when we think about it so i i've mentioned probably i can't remember what i said 30 seconds ago but i think i mentioned that compassion is at the root of everything we do and when you think about the way compassion is supposed to work it's kind of oxymoronic for us to have to ask for compassion right so if you think about you know, we, we, you think about if you've lost someone dear to you or you just came home from the hospital, who do you see as more compassionate? The individual who says, call me if you need anything, or the individual who just spontaneously drops by and drops off dinner or sits with right. you and holds your hand while you cry. Compassion should be something that is offered without request. It right. should be something that is proactive and preemptive. And our society does not facilitate that sort of communication. So we wanted to ensure that people had an opportunity to provide proactive compassion and the recipients had access to that when it's 2 a.m. and they're just leaving their shift or something horrible has happened or just they, you know, they've had a bad day and they they need some support that is accessible to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and, um, so it's it's like you guys put some guardrails down for us. Like you you've kind of you know <laughs> laid the road down so we can go this way and we can we can do this for other people. But there's some guardrails that don't let us mess up too much. Because I I I I like this. Shouldn't have to ask for compassion, but compassion also I think shouldn't come with the expectation of you know something coming back to you, which you already right. said. But I mean you've also that's a guardrail I see that you're putting in. It's like okay, so here you go. You can go this direction, but that person not, I mean, that just keeps hanging with me, that person not feeling the need to say thank you, like you said, sort of ad infinitum, mm-hmm. like, where does it stop, right? Stop, mm-hmm. um, is, is even, and, go ahead. And I yeah. think of that as being very trauma-informed as well, that creates yes. that psychological safe zone, that it's not truly compassion and internally motivated on my part if the expectation is for you to come back and say, Oh, you're great too. Thanks to thanks to you. You know that's that's yeah. not compassion. That's not altruism. That's an external motivation where it's about me, and that's what I think likes and comments often create. Of course, is something that may have initially been internally motivated out of the goodness of my heart. Now becomes a competition between my message and your message to see which ones have received the most likes. And if my message isn't liked as much as yours, then I feel bad. And that's right. That's self-defeating, obviously. Right, right. Well, there's also then, you know, people know, like, if you look at Richard Branson's tweets, I mean, people are jumping on there and, yes, I get this because I do that. And some are trying to, I believe, um, get noticed by him. But he's right. got this huge, you know, huge, you know, fo- you know followership. So, he he is, people are going to see your tweets if you respond and, and or quote him or whatever. So, I mean, there's there's a lot of ways to not be truly unconditionally compassionate um, 
you know, on, on social media, it just sort of, you know, it sort of lends itself to marketing and, and getting your name out mm-hmm. there and stuff. So I, when I work with fire service and law enforcement, first responders, um, I was, it was actually on a podcast show. I was talking to Michael Sugru, who is a uh, retired uh, police officer and former Air Force captain. And um, he was, uh, he, I had him on twice. He's, he's a great guest. And I was talking to him and he was talking about the academy, like what was important to him about the police academy. And he was describing it. And as he was describing it, my mind was kind of going along with him and thinking. And he said when he went back to visit the members, you know, he went to the people he went to the academy with, he just felt this unbreakable bond. I had already kind of come across this with working with mostly with firefighters. So given, and I know you know this, but maybe the audience doesn't, but given that our, you know, our, our older brain is really built around and has evolved from, from being able to be in small groups, clans, tribes, you know, that's why that's all kind of out there right now. But it's not just that it's eating together, sleeping together and fighting off danger. So I, I came across this from a study um, I read about um, uh, combat veterans who were asked if they would go back, wanted to go back to war. And a lot of them wanted to go back to war, not for the war, not for the shooting or the, you know, killing or anything, but for the camaraderie that they felt that deep, deep connection. Well, that's because it's, it's really hardwired deep in our brain. So, and then I started thinking about firefighters. I was like, okay, so it's almost always all guys, there are women who, you know, are firefighters, but this, the percentage is very low. I think 7% at the latest latest um, sort of, you know, calculation. But they are in-house, you know, the station. They eat together, sleep together. They fight off danger together. Like, what more, you know, sort of click in, in their ancient brain can you have? And that's, I. you've got me thinking about how um, how this must be, and I'm guessing, but this I would think would be a really deep need. Like I believe that not being able to look in people's eyes right now and not being able to see their mouths, I think all of that is just clicking into very deeply unconscious stuff and and difficult and sort of, you know, ratchets everything up for us. But I would also think that what you're doing is providing a way for people to meet a need, which is probably also really in our, you know, in our ancient brain, our reptilian brain, brains, you know, whatever, um, that it's there and unconscious, but when that need is met, we must feel better on so many levels. Tell me what you think about that. That's just me guessing, but. No, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, that's, that's exactly it. When we look at what is happening in our society in general with regards to escalating rates of depression, anxiety, deaths of despair, addiction, PTSD, and so forth, what we see happening is the more we advance technologically and the more we find competitiveness rather than authenticity online, the more lonely we feel. And if you ask people today how many friends they have versus asking people 40, 50 years ago, there's a dramatic and significant difference. Right. So people not only feel the loss of deep connections, they feel the loss of connection and con- connectedness to society overall. So that's, that's the foundational problem. Yes. Then you add to that the challenges associated with finding your tribe. Uh, in, and then let's say you do, whether it's a, 
it's the robotics group in high school. It's your sorority in college. It's your uh, platoon, uh, whatever. What happens after that is you feel this sense of camaraderie. You feel that connectedness you've never experienced before, exactly. perhaps. Yeah. But then those go away. You graduate from college. Right. Um, you know, you, you separate from the military or there is low morale or a disjoint between the administration and the foot soldiers. And that feeds to the dissolution of your sense of belongingness to a unified and supportive tribe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and, what and I, I, I think it's even deeper than that though, Risa. Um, I, um, I feel like it is, I mean, I, and it's a sense and I don't have research to back this up. So I just want to throw it out there as, as my guess, but I feel like, you know, yes, all those things we know are true, right? We've got the, the, the research to robustly support that. But I feel like it's almost like, um, like a, like, like social anxiety I call don't kick me out of the tribe drive. Cause it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's very ancient in our brain. And basically mm-hmm. if you were kicked out of the tribe when, you know, we, we lived, you know, whatever long ago in caves and, and whatever, then, you died, right? You died, exactly. I almost feel like you are at that level with this because mm-hmm. this this ability to connect and so the people who are you know sort of stifled, right? They can't say I'm I, and then the, the guilt that they feel because they can't tell someone I so appreciate you. I know you're putting your life on the line for me. I believe that's a deep need. And that deep need comes yep. from a survival instinct in us that we've got to let them know we get it because next time they, you know, they, they may need for us to go out and it, it's got to be reciprocal. Right. So yep. I feel like that's such a deep need and um, you know, not even just sort of on the level that we were talking about it, but, but so tell me what you think about my, my guess at that. Yeah, no, I, I, again, spot on. I, when we look at, particularly at victims of trauma, when we look at, in at children who were raised with, a high number of adverse experiences in their childhood. What we see is the difference between those who develop psychological disturbances or behavioral disturbances and those who uh, demonstrate a much greater level of resiliency. The primary distinguishing difference is the presence of that tribe. Do you have someone who gives you unconditional regard and supports you and helps you overcome and work through those challenges and someone that you can offer something in return. Because if we don't have the support of the tribe and we don't, that we lose that trust, right? We, we, and if even going back to safety, right? We're back to safety. Exactly. Yeah. You know, so go, go back to Eric Erickson's theories. The very first stage is trust versus mistrust. Exactly. If we know somebody's got our back, we're, we're more willing to take risks. We're more willing to be authentic. And being part of a tribe and feeling that sense of belonging is, it gives you a sense of purpose because you can provide for others, but it gives you that sense of trust and safety in that you can explore the world and you can express yourself and somebody is going to be there who has your back. Right, right. Yeah. And that is fundamental. Without that, we lose we lose our sense of purpose. We lose oh, our sense lose of mission. Everything. We feel a loss of control. Right. Yeah. We lose, and, yeah. And, and that's when the trauma sets in that much deeper. 
So if we have the tribe, we have the buffering agents, um, the trauma still exists, the trauma still has an impact, but the trauma doesn't affect us in a way that it would if we felt as though we were alone in the world. Right. So you're clicking into two things that are really interesting, me, interesting to me in terms of you know research that I've done and I'm currently doing. So the last I looked, and it was a few years ago, the primary distinguisher um, in terms of um, uh, resilience was one long-term relationship with a caring adult. But it sounds like the research has moved forward and it's gone to this tribe um, because of the way you described it, it sounds like a, an evolution in the, re- the research that it's a, it's a tribe and rather than one long-term relationship with a, with a caring adult, which is a one-way, so we're back to unidirectional again, um, now it's a tribe, so it's that bi-directional thing that we were talking about, right? So I think the developmental stage is crucial here as well. So clearly the impact of trauma and the benefit of having a supportive individual or tribe is different if you're three years old versus 13 years old versus, of course, like you're 30. So what you need psychologically and socio-emotionally is going to be dependent upon your theory of mind and your sense of agency. So having a supportive individual and a unidirectional relationship with someone who's taking care of you is clearly more important when you're younger. As you grow older and you become more sufficient and you are able to connect with other individuals in a way that demonstrates their need for you, it becomes all the more important for us to feel hopeful and useful and to have a sense of mission and purpose in our lives. So that's where this give and take and the tribal leadership would come into play. Mm -hmm. We need to feel as though we're contributing from a tribe as well as that safety and that unconditional acceptance that comes from being able to integrate seamlessly into a tribe, the give and take, the arguing, the love, all of that fosters our ability and comfort in taking from the tribe the support that we need when we need it as well. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, that's so cool. I mean, I wasn't sure where we were going to go today. I mean, I knew what you did on a basic level, but this is so this is so important. This is really important. So I wanted to toss a couple things out to you. Um, so I did a study when I was at University of Virginia, and um, I started looking at what I sort of conceptualized as what what I termed long term low level disruption. And at that time, it was not in the literature. I was just looking at this this you know the research design and the population, all that kind of stuff, and it wasn't an acute traumatic experience. It wasn't, well, it was, but it was an earthquake, but no one was hurt. It wasn't, you know, mass damage. It was actually in a town that was about 30 miles east of where UVA is located in Charlottesville, Virginia. And what happened was they had to, they raised the, um, the high school. It was just, you know, no longer inhabitable. Habitable? Inhabitable. Hmm. Which would it be? I think both are applicable. Both, yeah, yeah. So my mind does that a lot. Sorry. Anyway, so people can no longer go in it. Um, uh-huh. And uh, so they raised that, and then it took them, get this, four full years to rebuild, to, you know, get things back to normal. To, and it wasn't even normal. It was new, right? In the meantime, so they opened the, 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 the schools again within 19 days. It's a large county, and... All I think there are four middle schools that fed into one, I'm sorry, four elementary schools that fed into one middle school, 
which fed into um, one high school. And the middle school and high schools were both on the same campus. So there was a middle school, nice campus, large, big, huge, like um, stadium field, football was a big deal there, and then um, the high school. And so because the high school, people couldn't go into it anymore, um, the they actually had school six days a week. So hmm. if you, and I had a, a middle schooler and a high school and I lived in that area. So I had to take my high schooler Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and my middle schooler Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. So it was definitely disruptive. Then just as things happened, they had to have like a, a construction fence that sort of walled off the, the old high school, but it was there for like two years. So the kids are getting off the bus. They're, you know, they're walking by this. There's the old high school, especially juniors, mm-hmm. seniors, right? Teachers were sharing rooms. So what, like when I said they shared the middle school, they shared the middle school. You would get there, your stuff would be moved. You'd be, you know. So right. I looked at this long-term low-level disruption, as I called it, as um, something that could potentially cause the same uh, changes in the, the human physiology as what we would think of as an, quote, actual trauma or an acute trauma. Um, and, and it looks like it's, it's valid. I mean, it's a pretty, still concept, but it's still pretty, you know, pretty interesting concept. And I think mm-hmm. as we talk about um, COVID and we talk about Amica and, you know, you are, COVID is certainly the long-term low-level disruption. And there's also lots of trauma involved in it. But you're doing something that actively combats that on a real research-based level. That's what it sounds like to me. That's the way I'd like to think about it. I appreciate that you see it that way as well. I and really do. One of the things that, that stood out to me as you were discussing what was going on in the schools is that you have, on the one hand, you have teachers and the school administration who are rallying around the need for normalcy and the continued educational experience and bringing the kids together and having the teacher support them mm-hmm. in as safe an environment as possible. Right. But, and of course, which was appropriate, right? I mean, that's appropriate. Right. No, that's and, exactly and they right. need that. Yeah, yeah. You need that continuity. Mm-hmm. The On the other hand, you had structures like the fences and that are reminders that, it, that something happened here that was out of the norm that shook things up. Right. And I see something similar or analogous with what we are trying to address with Amica. So uh, a few folks have asked me, why, why the wristband? Why not just the app? And that was very deliberate on our part because our phones have become synonymous with those fences that are built around the rubble and the schoolyard. And our phones disrupt our sleep. They raise our blood pressure. They cause us depression and anxiety. And the bands are essentially a neutral stimulus. If you think of it from a, from a classical or Pavlovian conditioning approach, mm-hmm. a wristband really doesn't have much meaning unless somebody gave it to you or says something on it or, you know, you, you attach a meaning to it. Correct. So when we give an individual, a first responder, a teacher, a healthcare worker, a grocery store clerk, whomever, a band, it'll say thank you on it or it has the logo or the insignia of the organization that is sponsoring it, mm-hmm. but the band itself has a positive connotation then to begin with. It's a gift, but it's relatively neutral nevertheless. But once you tap your phone to it and on your phone, the screen pops up with the Amica app and it's all the positive affirmations and encouragement and support and mm-hmm. warm sentiments. 
you only have to tap your phone to the band, what, maybe seven to 10 times, 20, you know, if you're really distracted. And then the band takes on a life of its own. Nice. So we wanted something that was going to separate the affirmation and house the support and the warm sentiments in and of itself. Kind of like the kids will walk past the fence in the schoolyard and be reminded of the trauma and the rubble and the fallout. But then they go into their classroom and their teacher is warm and welcoming and it's a psychologically safe space, even if it isn't their school. Right. And that's right. essentially what we're trying to create um, that you brilliant. don't get on social media. Right. right. Yeah, because you know, you pick up your phone, there's just like the, there's a whole world there that gets at you at some level, right? You know, right. your, your app, you know, your your texts are there, your WhatsApp is there, your the the, the your seven emails there. I have yeah. to return. Right, yep. right. All that stuff's there. <laughs> I, I really like that. I think that's a great idea because it keeps it, like you said, neutral or pos- positive, like this thing. It like takes on thing, a positive yeah. valence. Yeah, this right. Is like and this- so that even if you're out of range from your Wi-Fi or you don't want to put the light on in a dark room, uh, all you have to do is look at your band and you know what's there. And the messages, so let's say you have thousands of messages come through and some of them are particularly salient. You can favorite those. So when you're when it's 2 a.m. and you just got off your shift or you need to see that one message that really speaks to your heart. It's easy to access that. But the band in and of itself starts taking on that on its own life. And every time you look at it, you feel a little bit of that warm fuzzy that lifts your spirits and gives you a sense of hope. Oh man, we all need that so much. So much. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, I want to thank you for today. And um, this has been totally enlightening. I'd love to have you back because I... I I feel like as I walk away from this um, recording, I'm going to have a lot of things going on in my brain and my brain is going, what about that? And what about this? And ooh, there was that study, right? right? So, um, you know, maybe we can do it again. I I would love to have you on again. That'd be wonderful. I think that'd be great. So, you know, we've identified all kinds of wonderful things that this, this application can do, but what, what do you have in place for any, misuse moderation has been a concern from the get-go for obvious reasons we see this take place on reddit and Mm -hmm. on every other social media platform and it's something we're very concerned about our first approach particularly with the thank you program which involves an organization or an individual purchasing an account from amica excuse me that comes with a certain number of contributor accounts Mm -hmm. the people who share the messages and bands which go to the recipients so first off, you, you have to pay for the program. So we're hoping that nips a lot of the trolls in the bud to begin with. And second, so let's say your organization purchased this and they're giving the bands to their philanthropic, I mean, to their community partners as part of their corporate philanthropy. If your boss invites you to participate and shares the validation code with you. Right, right. <laughs> they're sharing your email. So if you go yeah. in there and you say something that's particularly malicious, yes, um, it's getting back to you. It's probably going to get back to your boss. So we figure the demand cues there are enough to, to probably, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, nip in the bud. The, you're discourage yes, to people. discourage. Yes, Thank you. High yeah. price, right? <laughs> right. And so the the way it's set up is you can't you can buy an individual account, and, and that comes with three or an individual.
with free contributor accounts and you can share those with people. And so if you're going to spend the money, you know, yeah, you can may send a malicious message, but the likelihood is relatively slim. And we do have the capacity to screen those messages. We do have a reporting mechanism in place okay. and we will take those down. Okay. Um, and so also can the, the recipient um, block people? Uh, yeah, you, you can block them. Um, and also you can report it and we'll take them down. So the way That's particularly good, the thank yeah. you program works is if there is an organization in California supporting first responders and an organization in Texas who's also sharing messages with first responders, all those messages get bundled together for an overwhelmingly powerful show of community support. So if you find one person there who has sent something malicious or um, negative, we'll contact the individual who shared the code with them and we will remove them from the platform. So we have a few checks and balances in place to make sure that people don't behave in that fashion. That's yeah. That was where it defeats some of it. Right. But I mean, you've got levels of security. It sounds radically. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then we will go through and at least spot check um, random on random days and random messages. So there are several um, checks and measures in place to ensure that the mission of compassion is not degraded or undermined. Right. Right. So back to sort of the beginning of the podcast, you know, we, we shouldn't have to or shouldn't need to ask for compassion. Is that what you said? But mm-hmm. not only are we needing to ask for it, we're needing to like, you know, protect it and make sure somebody yeah. doesn't use it, flip it around yeah, and well, be a jerk, right? Uh, <laughs> technology is yeah. a double-edged sword, isn't it? We can yes. do so much good with it, but it can pretty easily degrade if we don't keep an eye on that or put up, as you mentioned, the guardrails. Exactly, exactly. Well, I think you guys are doing a phenomenal job. And you as CEO of Amaka USA, and hats off to you, Dr. Stein. I'm, I'm really impressed. Really impressed. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. And then thank you for all the good work you've been doing as well. Thank you. Thank you. So um, I will uh, be doing a wrap up after this, but I want to say really quickly that the website for Amaka USA, is this amaka.org? Is that the USA one or is that the whole one? Uh, yes, that's, that's, the, that's the whole one. Okay. So the, the, the overall website is um, amaka.org and it's AA. M-I-C-A dot org. Go ahead. Right. And and at the top right of the page, you'll mm-hmm. see a tab for the thank you campaign. Mm-hmm. And on there is a brief video introduction and uh, more specific information re- related to our COVID-19 thank you response program. Perfect. Perfect. And LinkedIn is linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash Amica US, and that is A A M I C A U S. And finally, Facebook is facebook.com forward slash Amica with a capital A, A M I C A capital U capital S. So I'll spell it out A A M I C A U S. The A and the U and the S are capitalized. So wonderful having you here. I've really enjoyed it, Dr. Stein. Thank you. I appreciate your giving me the platform and taking the time to discuss it with me today. And thank you for being on the show, Dr. Stein. Um, That was really unique. Um, So uh, Dr. Stein shared with us Amica and all of the positive things one can do with it. 
And as she put it, they are crowdsourcing compassion and sharing it through a high-tech wearable. And this is something that would be positive at any time, but especially now during COVID and all of the things that are going on in our country and around the world, this is so needed. So please visit Amica, A-A-M-I-C-A dot org and click on the thank you campaign to learn more. Thank you for listening to the Traumatic States of America. If you would like to learn more about Dr. Lori Hood, go to LoriHoodPhD.com. The Traumatic States of America podcast is produced and engineered by Band Alla Productions at their studio in Washington, D.C.